All right, good morning, Grace Orange. Good to be with you today. What a privilege it is to open up the Word together. And we get to trust the Spirit of God to use the Word of God in our hearts and in our lives to do His work in us. What a privilege we have. And I want to talk to you today about freedom. Freedom. Specifically, how Jesus frees captives. How He frees captives. It seems like, if you look around in your own life or in the world, that freedom is in short supply. You look around and a lot of people are enslaved to various passions and various addictions. And they start to think they can never be free. That they're stuck. That they've resigned themselves to live in in this miserable prison, really, for the rest of their lives. And maybe that describes you. Maybe you feel stuck. And then you look outside of your own life and you're like, wow, there is really a seemingly endless supply of enslaving evil that is is getting paraded right in front of our very eyes day after day after day. Permeates everything. It's almost like we have front row seats to human depravity. We have worldwide instant news. We hear about it. You might get notifications while I'm preaching right now where you find out about something that's going on in the world that's horrendous. And our vocabulary has become littered with words and phrases like hate crime, brutality, and terror attack, and riots, and violent protests. And in spite of all this, in spite of, of all the, really, the enslaving evil we see around, Jesus frees captives. He frees captives from sin's power. He frees people that are captive to Satan. And Acts 16, that's where we're going to be today. In fact, take your Bibles, Acts 16. It shows us how Jesus frees captives and, and the way he does it. Last week, my friend Josh Mack preached on how the gospel gives us real hope for real change, how God changes us by the gospel, and how God intends for his grace to bring salvation for all kinds of people, that every person is in need of of a savior, that all people are depraved and are are in need of, of, of Jesus. And we saw how God is demonstrating his grace over and over again by continually to actively train believers and then to continuing to transform lives. You, you, if you're a, a professing believer, you ought to have a story of how God has transformed your life. What he has done and only he could do. Well, today in Acts, what we see is how Jesus actually brings that about how he brings these kind of eternal realities of being freed from Satan and sin, how, how real freedom in Christ comes about. And the way God does it most often is he uses his servants, he uses believers as he frees people. The, the idea is if you're a believer, you have a, an amazing privilege from God to be used by him in his process of freeing captives. Take your Bibles, turn to Acts 16, and please stand with me 
I'm going to read verses 16 through 40. Begin at verse 16. This is God's word. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you, in the name of Jesus Christ, to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. When they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in, attacking them. The magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into the prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. The prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. Immediately, all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke up and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. The jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. When they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. And Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, we want to receive your word with joy. We want to obey whatever you show us, Lord, by your spirit. Lord, do your work in us, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Just this week, Independence Day, July 4th, we celebrate our freedom as Americans. And a lot of Americans might not even know what we're, what we're celebrating on July 4th. They're like, well, we're having fireworks and barbecues and family is over. But um, what exactly is this about? Independence Day. We're commemorating 
the adoption of the Declaration of Independence on July 4th, 1776, declaring the American colonies, the 13 colonies, a new nation, the United States of America, no longer under British rule. And, and we're celebrating freedom from tyranny and freedom to worship God and freedom to pursue our dreams and ambitions. You look at the last line of our national anthem, the Star-Spangled Banner, and it says this, we are the land of the free and the home of the brave. But we often don't feel very free. And we often don't feel very brave. And sometimes it looks as if our freedoms are being taken away before our very eyes. They're eroding right before us. The political landscape can look bleak. The economic landscape can look bleak. The relational landscape can look bleak. And on a personal level, we talk about free will. We have the freedom to choose what we're going to do. That, that we want to do something and we're able to go and do that thing. That's the essence of our freedom, our freedom of our will, that we, we can do what we want when we want to do it. But when you say Jesus frees captives, you're, you're saying several things that are implied. First, that someone has been taken captive against their will and are being, is being held in that position, and secondly, that Jesus has the power to free them. Not, well, Jesus might have the power to free them, or Jesus possibly could maybe muster up enough strength to free them, but absolutely the truth is that Jesus frees captives. It's a fact, it's a truth, and so the idea, the third idea that's implied here is he actually frees people. He frees people from Satan's power. He frees people from sin's penalty and power. Now here in this passage, Paul and Silas are getting thrown in jail. And you're saying, well, yeah, they're the captives. They're not the captives in this passage. The captives in this passage are the slave girl and the jailer. They're the ones that are being held by Satan to do his will. Now to be sure, Paul and Silas getting thrown in jail... They're not the captives in this passage, but they were the beneficiaries of a heavenly jailbreak, for sure. Now, several times in the book of Acts, you see angels are sent by God to free Christ's disciples from prison. Two times the Jewish authorities had tried to keep Peter in prison, and you'll see in chapter 5, you'll see in chapter 12, that angels are sent to open prison doors, let them free. In this passage, you see Paul and Silas eventually freed and through the whole process of God sending an earthquake, and what you see here is God's power is all over this. God's sovereignty is all over this. God providentially orchestrating human events is all over this passage. And it goes right along with what had been promised for thousands of years. The Messiah would free captives. This is what Jesus does. He frees captives. He frees sins captives. Jesus himself said in John 8, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. He also says, if the Son shall set you free, you will be free indeed. You will be free from Satan's power. You will be free from sin's penalty. 2 Timothy 2.25 tells us, in the context of believers ministering to the needs of others, and a lot of people would say, if, if people weren't involved in life, it would be so easy, wouldn't it? But as you're working with people, and oftentimes difficult people, 
what 2 Timothy 2.25 tells us is that we are to gently correct people who are in opposition to the truth so that they would come to their senses and that God would free them because they had been held captive by Satan to do his will. So this is a very real problem in life. A lot of people are held captive by Satan to do his will. A lot of people are deceived. A lot of people are enslaved. You look in chapter 16 of Acts. There are three people that are freed from Satan's grip in Philippi. The first one we saw, we met her several weeks ago, two weeks ago. It was Lydia. We were looking at Acts 16, 1 through 15, and we saw God's power to open doors for the church to grow, people coming to know Christ. We saw him open doors of guidance as his people were actually moving Godward. They were following Jesus. They wanted to preach the gospel to people in need, and he is moving them and guiding them as they go along. But the other thing we saw is that he opens doors to salvation, that he gives the gift of eternal life. And it even says, I love this phrase, that God opened Lydia's heart to receive the message that was being preached. He opens hearts. Well, today what we're seeing is a slave girl and a jailer. You know, if you think about it, you've got Lydia, who is who is a wealthy businesswoman. You've got a slave girl with an evil spirit from the other side of the tracks. And then you've got a jailer who is probably a very harsh man and a very strong man that was going to have his heart open to the gospel. And they are all different kinds of people. They're all in need of a savior. They're all depraved. They're all sinful. They're all without hope in the world without Christ. Just like everyone that we meet that doesn't know Jesus. Jesus frees sins captives. But what we want to see today, I want you to see, is how he does this most of the time. The way he does it most often is through his followers who are following him and obeying him. As I put the other week, flexible followers faithful to his call who care more for his glory than their own. Who care more about people coming to faith in Christ than their own comfort level. It's very easy for us to be very wrapped up in our own comfort level and what we want. And and what we see in this passage is that Paul and Silas are willing to be persecuted almost to the point of death, and they're willing to be put in prison because they are more concerned for other people's salvation than they are for their own safety. And this is something that I I am absolutely convinced that God wants to work into all of our hearts, that we would be more concerned for other people's salvation than even our own safety, which we do put a high premium on that. But how exactly does Jesus free captives? What we see in this passage are five actions that God initiates as he uses his servants, as he uses believers in the process of freeing captives. These are things that we will see straight through this passage that God initiates as he uses us, as he uses believers, as he frees captives. So we are intricately involved in this. We're not the people that free people, but he uses us as his instruments of of righteousness. So I'll call your attention to the first thing, and you look at verse 16. The first thing we see here, as God is freeing captives, is that he gives his, his people wisdom to discern error, to know truth from error, and then courage to confront error. He gives wisdom to discern error and courage to confront it. We see this in the first three verses, verses 16 through 18. 
Verse 16 tells us they were going to the place of prayer. They're going to where people are worshiping God in Philippi. There is no synagogue in Philippi. They didn't have the 10 Jewish men necessary to start a synagogue. So they go down by the riverside, and the Jews would meet there, and they would pray and praise God and hear the word. So they were going to the closest thing to a synagogue in Philippi. And as they're going, they're intercepted by a slave girl who has a spirit of divination, literally an evil spirit. Literally, it says a spirit, a python, like the snake, a python. And it comes from the ancient Greek oracle at Delphi, which was also called Pytho, because as the story goes, Apollo was allegedly embodied in a snake there. And as time went on, both ventriloquists and fortune tellers were called pythons. Well, she had this evil spirit in her, and she was making her owners, because she's a slave girl, this is human trafficking, and she is making her owners tons of money through fortune telling. People all want to know what's going to happen in the future. It's not just our culture where people are going and wasting money to find out what's going to happen in the future, but people back then, they were very fixated on this, and so their owners were making a lot of money using her in this way, trafficking her in this way. And and again, just like now, people want to know what's going on in the future. But fortune tellers, they're going to tell you happy things. They're going to tell you what you want to hear. They're going to tickle your ears. They're going to give you the thing that you are paying them to give. They're not going to hear about sin. You won't hear about judgment. You won't hear about consequences of sin. You only hear things to make you feel better. And people keep going back to that same poison again and again and again. You may have been tempted to do that, to be superstitious in such a way that you go and kind of get your fortune told or in some way or another. It's a false hope. What we know is Christians have the word of God and it is inerrant, it is infallible, it is inspired by God and God always tells us the truth no matter how hard it is for us to accept it no matter how inconvenient it is to our lives, no matter how tough of a truth it is, God always tells us the truth. His word is true. There was demon possession going on here, and there's demon possession and and harassment going on today. There's a great battle going on. There's a spiritual battle going on for the souls of many people. We read in Romans 8, 2, that only the law of of, God of life, uh, the law of the spirit of life in Christ can set us free from the law of sin and death. Only Jesus can free captives. What happens is, verse 17, this gal who's in, in, that's embodied with a demon, she basically, it's, that's why they got the ventriloquist thing is because there would be voices coming out of her that she wasn't making up the words. The, it, she was being used. And she's following Paul and the, and the group, including Luke, because this is one of the we passages in Acts. Luke is now with them. And she keeps screaming, literally screaming something out. And the wild thing is she's actually saying something that is true. But the evil spirit is trying to use it for evil purposes. Satan will use the truth for evil purposes. What she's screaming out is, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Literally, a way of salvation. So there's a little bit of a twist on that. A way of salvation. They didn't want to get you know, uh, too, too pointed here. They were proclaiming the way of salvation. Jesus is the only way. But the girl is demon-possessed, and she's saying truth, but this would have confused a lot of people. 
She's demon-possessed. Her owners are using her to make money off of fortune-telling. And so this would have been very confusing for people because Satan is trying to deceive people, making it look like the girl is agreeing with the team, this ministry team, when, when, where they're in direct opposition to the truth that this ministry team is giving. And so Satan is trying to gain a foothold in order to discredit the, the cause of Christ. And verse 18, she keeps doing this over and over and over again. For many days in a row, she is following after them, screaming these words out. Just a big megaphone, a big billboard. These men are servants of the Most High God, and they are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. But she's linked with this evil spirit. The evil spirit is saying these words, and it's, it's, Satan is going to try anything, including the truth, to discredit the cause of Christ, and you and I need wisdom to know the difference. We need discernment. God gives discernment to his people to know truth from error, but also to confront the error. Verse 18, Paul gets very annoyed. Why is he annoyed? He's hearing truth, but he's hearing it from someone embodied with an evil spirit who's doing a lot of things that aren't true. Can you imagine what would have happened if they said, yeah, we're with them? Now that everything that this evil spirit says and does is going to be attached to the gospel and the church? Absolutely not. And so Paul basically says to the spirit, not to this gal, not to the victim, but speaks right to the spirit and says, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. He's calling on the authority of Jesus and it leaves immediately. The demons believe and they shudder. They shudder. They know. They know the judgment they are under. She's instantly freed from Satan's possession. What you need to know is that Satan is not sitting on a corner somewhere. He's not sitting in some place and just kind of wondering, like, what should I do next? He is continually deceiving. He is always trying to, to lie and kill and steal and destroy. He is the father of lies. He is absolutely against Jesus and his people. God gives wisdom to discern truth from error. Paul realized this, and, and he calls on the power of Jesus. In fact, he's calling on Jesus. I am awestruck at this, at the power of Jesus' name. He's not just saying the name and then thinking that those letters that form a word is somehow going to be magical. He is literally invoking the Lord Jesus Christ himself and asking Jesus by his own authority to cast out the demon. Jesus is the way, Jesus is the truth, Jesus is the life, and and the power of Jesus. He's invoking Jesus in all of his power and glory, and Jesus casts this demon out, frees the girl. Now this causes trouble. And the second thing we see here, how God uses us as he frees people, is that God allows persecution to further his purposes. When we want to get as far away from hardship and persecution as we can, God is wanting to use these things, all things, working all things together for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And so verses 19 through 24, we see this, God allowing persecutions to, to further his purposes. See, her owners see that their, their business is done. <laughs> their hope of profit is gone, literally gone out. The, the demon has gone out. So you follow the money trail to all sorts of evil. It's very deceptive here. Verse 
First Timothy 6.10 says, The love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And, and these guys are deceptive, and all they want to do is make profit off of this poor gal. In verse 19, they seize Paul and Silas. They literally grab Paul and Silas and they drag them into the marketplace before the rulers. They're making this a public spectacle. In verse 20, he brings them to the magistrates. They would be the two main leaders of this city. And here's what they do. They make two charges against them. They're causing riots and they're introducing an alien religion. These men are Jews, they're disturbing the city, they're causing riots, and they're advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Basically, they're not telling us to worship the emperor, they're telling us to worship Jesus. They're introducing an alien religion. That's against the law. Now, verse 22, the crowd joins the attack. The crowd are, is attacking them as well. The magistrates basically give orders to tear their clothes off. So now they're naked before the, the, the crowd, and there's orders given to beat them with rods. Now, the person that would inflict this punishment is called a lictor, and they would have a a bundle of rods and an axe, and they would take the rods, and they would beat you to a bloody pulp. It was the utmost brutality. And so they're beaten with rods and and then to a bloody pulp, and then verse 23, they're thrown in, in prison, and the jailer is ordered to secure them. So here they are, innocent. They're going to prison for the gospel. and verse 24, they're put in the inner prison. That's what's reserved for the worst of the criminals. And he puts their feet in the stocks. I know some of you are picturing you know, going to Williamsburg or something and, and having the, the, the wooden play stocks where you put your hands in and your, your head and you smile for the camera. This is made out of wood, but this was a Roman instrument of torture. And what would happen is there were different holes in the wood and they would put your, your legs into it as far as they could go to be pulled apart as far as the legs could go to the breaking point without breaking. You would be in excruciating pain. So Paul and Silas, when they're in jail, they are in the worst possible pain. They've been bleaten to a beaten to a bloody pulp. They've been put into a Roman instrument of torture. Their legs have been forced apart Intolerable pain, they're tortured, and they endure it. What we can't escape here is that God allows persecution to further his purposes. And we should be awestruck at that. That God has the power to providentially orchestrate events, even even events that seem to be very negative against Christians, in order to fulfill his purposes. Because what he's angling towards here is to free the captives, to free sin's captives, to free those who are bound by Satan. Move on to verse 25. The third thing we see here. God inspires prayer and praise even when it hurts. Think of the worst thing that's ever happened in your life. The most heart-wrenching thing you've been through. The most painful loss. And if you're a believer, even in the midst of that, Especially in the midst of that, God can enable you to to praise the glory of his grace. Verse 25 tells us that around midnight, when people are usually sleeping, Paul and Silas are still up. And what are they doing? They are praying. They're asking God for strength. They're asking God for wisdom. They're asking God for endurance. They're praising God. And They're not just praying, they're singing. They're singing songs. 
They're in a jail. They're in a dungeon. It's dark. It's rat-infested. It's, it's, it's a place of disease. It's a place of blood and guts. They've been beaten to a bloody pulp. They're in this jail. They're in the worst part of the jail, and they are singing songs to God. They are praising the glory of God's grace in Christ. This is in the present tense. They are weaving in songs of praise as they're praying. And they would have been singing psalms to God. If you're reading through the Bible with us, um, they were singing psalms. We're almost through the psalms right now. And think about it. Psalm 16, Psalm 28, Psalm 34, lots and lots of psalms. Bless the Lord at all times. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be in my mouth. This was true of Paul and Silas. And they were singing probably new songs that God would give them a song of deliverance in the night. As Proverbs talks about how God gives songs of deliverance. And the prisoners in the prison are listening. That word there, it's like when a doctor you know, takes you into the examination room and, and puts on the stethoscope and, and listens to your heart to see what's going on. That's how intently the prisoners are listening They're hearing them praise God with music in a prison, in the worst possible place that these two servants of God could have been brought, and everyone is listening, and there is joy coming out of Paul and Silas. In in what every one of us would say, this is the most horrible situation ever. And they're in excruciating pain. Singing prison songs can only happen when Jesus is more treasured than your life. In everything, give thanks. You know, the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to, to pen that. He, he went through this and, and more. You can read about all the things that Paul went through that were very painful and very trying and, and very tough. And, and he says, in everything, give thanks. I don't know what's going on in your life right now, but whatever God is bringing into your life You've got to understand God's sovereignty in it, that that he is using it. If you're a believer, he's using it to conform you to the image of Christ, to make you look more like Jesus. So don't be too quick to try to escape it. That's what I try to do. We We look for a loophole. We try to look for anything to get out of pain. Don't long for God to change your circumstances. Long for Christ more in the middle of your circumstances. There's all these things we want We're not promised everything we want, but we are promised that God will give us everything we need. Paul said rejoice always, even in a prison. He knew that testing produces endurance. James 1 tells us, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And and we think about, it's kind of relative when we think about our trials. Because as American Christians, we we are just so spoiled where we think a, a big trial is something that maybe christians in other countries might laugh at now that's not to say you're not going through a trial but we are very quick we're very quick to label something a hardship and a trial and we're very quick to look for an escape route a way out some loophole but do we ever stop to think do you ever stop to think how might this trial be used by god to make the gospel more attractive, to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. 
that God inspires prayer and praise even when it hurts. And rejoicing in Jesus in pain is only possible because of Jesus. It's completely counterintuitive. It doesn't go with the way we think. But you think about the power of prayer. You think about the power of praise. You think about the freedom that believers have been given to come boldly to God's throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And God might, will inspire you to pray and to praise. May he give us grace to do that in the worst of pain. Let's move on. Verses 26 through 30. A fourth, a fourth thing God uses as he is in the process of freeing captives. And he's using believers in the process. God empowers bold preaching of his word and compassionate care for people. Verse 26. Suddenly there's a huge earthquake. Foundation of the prison are shaken, and immediately the doors get opened up. Everyone's chains are, are undone. You know, they could, like, run out. At this point, they're, they're freed, and a lot of people would say, hey, we're free. Maybe, I think we're, we're convinced God wants us to leave. But see, there was a compassionate care aspect that was going on here. Verse 27, the jailer wakes up. He would have been a rough, tough man, and he would have been very responsible and he's under a calling and he sees the prison doors open and he draws his sword to kill himself he is going to commit suicide here he figures his prisoners have escaped he is going to be executed if he doesn't kill himself because if you lose your prisoners your life is over little does he know he is about to be rescued from certain death look at verse 28 paul literally screams He screams this out, don't do it, we're all here. Imagine the power of the word of God, the power of Jesus, the authority of Christ. All these people in the jail have been listening to Paul and Silas, and somehow God got them all to stay. Not one prisoner lost. These aren't like a whole church of believers that are like going, we'll do whatever you say, Paul. These would be like the worst of the worst. And it's amazing. Here's the jailer coming to the moment of trial the moment of crisis, he wants to kill himself. So different from Paul and Silas who were in worse situation and, and it's not their goodness that, that gets them through this. It's not their, their strength. It's not their, their, their own personal might. The difference in Paul and Silas was Christ in them, the hope of glory. Colossians 1.27. They had had their eyes opened. Jesus frees captive. They had been freed by Jesus. Paul, very dramatically in Acts 9, he saw reality very clearly that Jesus is better than all this world has to offer. Verse 29, the jailer calls for lights. It's the dark, dingy prison in the middle of the night. And he runs in, and he's trembling with fear. He had just about to kill himself. And he falls down before Paul and Silas. And he says in verse 30, What must I do to be saved? He'd heard the content of their singing and their praying. Most likely he'd heard the story of God opening Lydia's heart to the gospel. And he'd heard the story of the slave girl being freed from this evil spirit. And so he asked, what must I do to be saved? And verse 31 is their answer. Now you ask all sorts of people what must they do to be saved and you can come up with a lot of different responses. Well, work really hard. Be really good. Pay amount of money. Just sign up for this course. Whatever it is. And here's their answer, verse 31. 
the best answer in the whole world. And it's the best one because it's the right one. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And they cared not just for the jailer, but also his household. You and your household, you all believe in the Lord Jesus, you all be saved. 1 John 3.23 says this. This is God's commandment, that that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. The Bible is 100% crystal clear that there is salvation only by grace through faith in Christ. Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's glorious truth. It's the truth we need to give out to everyone we can, we can. So verse 32, they speak God's word to him and everyone in his house. See, if you're a Christian, proclaiming the gospel is your number one job. It doesn't matter what your paycheck says and who pays that paycheck. Proclaiming the gospel is your number one job if you're a believer. And you need to explain the whole gospel. You need to take time to explain the word. There's a lot of people that would walk around saying, well, just Acts 16, 31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. And if you give them nothing else, they're going to be very confused. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? What does it mean? Well, to believe in Jesus means you believe that Jesus is who he claims to be, that he is the sinless, sovereign Savior, the Son of God who came to die for sinners in their place, and he's coming to die for, he came to die for sinners who are separated from God due to their sin, and without faith in him, they will die, and the wrath of God will come upon them. You see, you can't understand salvation unless you know what you're being saved from. It won't make any sense. And it means you believe what Jesus did. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us very clearly, Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He rose from the dead. As often as I can, I say that we are preaching Christ crucified, buried, risen, exalted, and returning. The imminent return of Christ, the personal, visible, bodily return of Christ for his people bringing blessing and with judgment on unbelievers. This should make us very intent on on preaching this message to everyone we can, one-on-one settings and as big of a group as God gives you. And I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, do you believe this message? Do you believe in Jesus and what he did and who he is and have have you received Eternal life from God. Have you been forgiven of your sins? Have you, been, have you repented? Have you said, I don't want what I've had in my life. I want what God wants. And even if it's a harder road, are you willing to go down that road? Now, there's another part to what we see here. It's not just them preaching and saying, this is what you need to do. They're very compassionate in their care. They're very merciful in loving kindness. They cared about Lydia. They cared about the demon-possessed slave girl. They cared about the jailer. These were all captives. They cared more for these people than their own safety, their own well-being. They shared not only the word of God, but their own life. What did Paul say in 1 Thessalonians 2, 8? That you would consider people so dear that you would gladly share your life and the gospel. So they're living what they're, they're preaching. They, they, they lived it. They, they, they were in prison, beaten to a bloody pulp, feet in stocks, excruciating pain, and they're praying and praising God. And somehow God gives them the ability to keep all the prisoners there so that the jailer won't lose his life. 
that you care so much that you are willing to go to any length to bless people. That's how you apply this. Am I willing to go to any length to bless people? Or am I so concerned about myself? Let's say someone's in the hospital. And let's say that six people reach out to them, care in different ways. The first person visits them in the hospital and prays with them and reads God's word with them. You're like, way to go, that's awesome. Now the second person doesn't like to go to hospitals, so they send balloons and a note. The third person smuggles a pizza and a few friends in. I know some of you would be doing this. The fourth person doesn't go but prays every day. The fifth person goes to the person's house, the one that's in the hospital, and cleans their house up so that when they get home, they'll have a clean house to come to. And the sixth person organizes meals so that this person won't have to worry about food when they get home. The question is, which person cared more? Every one of them. God has gifted you in different ways to care in different ways. And the, the idea is, we need to care so much about people that we are willing to go to any length to bless them. And not with just an end goal that they would like us, but that they would love Jesus. That's the Christian's top calling. Look at your neighbor. Look at your family member. Look at the person you don't like, the person you want to avoid, and bless them for Jesus and the gospel. I think you'll be amazed at what God does, how, what he does in your heart, and what he might do in them. But what's our default position? I know mine is often the me first mentality. We're taught that from our youngest days. It's a lie of the devil. We're told all the time, think about yourself, care about yourself because no one else is going to. Look out for your best interest. And we are pre-programmed to think this way. And it's almost shocking when we see otherwise. Just read the other day about some firefighters in Utah who rescued a woman who was being strangled under, uh, under a bridge near I-80. They went out of their way to help her. They took heroic action for another's good. You would do the same thing. Well, how about all the people we see and know that are, are on their way to hell without Jesus, to a Christless eternity? If we really believe what might happen, then as Paul says in Philippians 2, we're going to not merely look out for our own personal interests, but for the interests of others. That we will think of others as more important than ourselves. Think like Jesus, the one who freed you. Think like him. Titus 3.14 tells us, learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs. Well, the jailer had a pressing need. His pressing need was not to be killed by his commanding officer. And his most pressing need was to be saved from his sins. And what we see God doing is he's in the process of freeing this captive is to empower bold preaching of his word by his, by his people as well as compassionate care. Both of those. And I want you to see one more thing in this passage, one fifth thing that God is doing in the process as he is he's using believers to free captives. What a privilege, right, that God is using us. He wants to use us. Here's what God does. He opens hearts to the gospel that people would be saved and then live what they are, are believing. Verses 32 to 40, the last part of this passage. The people hear the gospel message. They respond to the gospel call in saving faith. Verse 33 tells us that the, the jailer takes them and he's caring for them big time. He's washing their wounds. They've got a lot of wounds. 
And then he gets baptized right then and there, not because he did a good deed by washing their wounds, but because he got saved by Jesus. And, and he was baptized with his household because everyone in his household who believed in Jesus and came to faith in Christ wanted to publicly profess their faith in Christ right then. And in verse 34, he then brings them into his house. He's still caring for them. He feeds them. They're not getting fed in prison. In those days, you, when you fed someone in your house, you would literally set a small little table in front of each person. Can you imagine? They're, they're, they're tired, they're, they're hungry, they've been beaten up, and he's honoring them by putting the table in front of them with food. And it says that he rejoiced along with his entire household that, at the salvation that God had granted them. And as soon as he's saved, all fear's gone. He's not wanting to kill himself anymore. There's transformation. He's freed from sin's power and penalty. He's freed from Satan. And I want you to notice one other. This is like Ben and Jerry's ice cream, okay? Um, you, you're digging in and you're like, well, look at that chunk, okay? There's a huge chunk of compassionate care embedded here that you could miss if you just read from verse 34 to 35 and keep going and not think about it. Okay, the jailer was still in jeopardy at this point. Yes, his soul was saved, but I don't think Paul and Silas are going to say, hey, by the way, now that you're saved, it doesn't matter if they kill you because we're going to take off now, okay? No. Basically, what happens is, and, and how do we know? We know by verse 35. Look, let me tell you what happened. They went back to jail to protect the brother in Christ, and that's something God, only God could will your will to want. <laughs> they went to prison for the slave girl's sake. They went back to prison for the jailer's sake. How do I know this? Verse 35, daybreak, the magistrates, these two leaders in the city, send the police to let them go. They send them to the jail to let them go. Verse 36, the jailer tells Paul, I guess the earthquake really shook him up. You're free to go. Go in peace. Paul says, um, time out. They beat us publicly, uncondemned. Oh, by the way, we're Roman citizens. No, they're not going to throw us out secretly. They need to come and take us out themselves. Now, why would he do this? By the way, they, got, they went back to jail. Can you, just, can you just imagine what happens? The jailer gets saved. They all get baptized. They all eat their food and get all washed up. It's in the middle of the night here, right? And then Paul's like, um, one more thing. Take us back. Chain us back up. Why would Paul do this? And why would he tell him, by the way, now I need a, re- I need a real apology. And I believe it was to protect the Philippian church that he was leaving behind. They were going to need some protections from the stuff that they went through just then. Verse 38, the police reported to the magistrates who were shaking in their boots. I'm sure they're asking, did anyone check these guys' IDs? How do we not know they're Roman citizens? Roman citizens couldn't be treated this way without a trial. So verse 39, they apologize. Which you might say, Woo, wow, they're laying aside their pride. No, it was a very self-protective move. Otherwise, their life would be on the line. They beg them to leave. Pretty please, leave the city. And Paul and Silas, verse 40, agree to leave. On the way out of town, they visit Lydia. They encourage the church. They appeal to the church. They urge them. They exhort them to continue in Christ. And then they leave, presumably leaving Luke there to help the church until he rejoins the team again in the next we section of Acts in chapter 20. What we see here is that God opens up hearts to believe the gospel and be saved and then live, live that faith. Power of God's word to save, the power of the Holy Spirit to save. See, Jesus frees captives through his servants who care more for God's glory and for others' good than their own. 
These are the things that God is, is, it wants to initiate as he uses you to free captives. It's not our power that frees people. It's God's power, but he is pleased to use us in the process. I'm sure you've been used before. I'm sure you have a story where God has given you wisdom to discern truth from error and then, and then courage to actually address it. You've got to beware fragments of truth just mixed in with error. Uh, you take a bit of glass in your bowl of oatmeal, it will tear you up. I'm sure you have a story of God allowing persecution in your life to serve his purposes. And, and you can tell people how you were comforted in all your affliction, and now you're able to comfort others in any affliction that they have. And I'm sure that you can give stories of God inspiring prayer and praise in your life, especially when it hurt a lot. See, when you get in that trouble, don't panic. Pray even when it hurts. I'm sure you could give an example of God empowering you to boldly proclaim the gospel, to know it, to, 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 to speak it, to explain it, to live it, watch it do its work. And I'm sure you can, you can give an example of where you have seen God open up hearts to the gospel, freeing sin's prisoners. We're free not to our, to our own goodness, but Christ's goodness. If you're free today, if you're a believer in Jesus and you're free from sin, it, it, was, it was not due to our own goodness that we got it. It's so easy as you go along in Christ to think, I'm doing pretty well and I'm pretty good now. God must be pleased. But we were lost, we were enslaved, we were guilty, and there was a merciful Savior, the Lord Jesus, who freed us. I think sometimes living in the United States, we give lip service to our freedom. We forget that lives were lost to purchase it. And I think it's true spiritually as well. Jesus allowed himself to be led to slaughter, purposely lay down his life so that we might be freed from sin. And Lord God, thank you that we can now remember the cross, that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, and that his death bought our freedom. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy and your grace. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.